0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: And so we come to the end of another week on Political Rewind. It is Friday, December 3rd if you're listening to the show in real time right now. Um, A lot to talk about. We've spent a good portion of the week, of course, talking about politics, electoral politics, now that Stacey Abrams has entered the governor's race, among other topics. Uh, But today, we are going to turn our attention to the new variant, which has uh, people um, around the world, really, uh, concerned about what Omicron could represent as the next phase of the virus, how dangerous it may be. And uh, we understand going into this show that there's not a lot of answers at this point, but there are plenty of questions and they're worth unpacking. So we'll do that on the show uh, today. Uh, It's Friday, which means that my AJC partner on the show is political writer and a reporter and columnist, Patricia Murphy. She writes the Political Insider column on Wednesdays and Sundays for the AJC and, of course, oversees the uh, Jolt. Uh, on AJC.com every day. Patricia, welcome to the show today. And let me very quickly start by asking you give us you've already posted your Sunday column on the website. And um, give us just a little hint about what you're writing about today.
0: Uh, Well, the headline is Governor, I'm sorry, President Donald Trump could make uh, Stacey Abrams the next governor of Georgia. So it's uh, looking at uh, President Trump's active involvement in this governor's race and how uh, it could accrue to the benefit of the Democrats in the end over the serious concerns of Republicans.
1: You can read that already on AJC.com or it'll be in the the newspaper, the Dead Tree edition of the AJC on Sunday. Sam, maybe we could post a link to uh, that column on our uh, social media. Would that be okay with you? Thank you. Um, we're also joined today by two journalists, Andy Miller, who is the editor of Georgia Health News and really the driving force behind Georgia Health News. You know, Andy, I wonder if two years ago, I mean, you've, you've run this, this website, this new online news uh, publication for a long time now, but I wonder if two years ago you would have had any idea just how important it would be uh, up, till to, up through today.
2: Well, Bill, I can tell you that uh, I've been a health journalist for almost 30 years, and uh, I, you, know, it, you would think I would know something after that time, but the pandemic has created uh, a whole new learning experience for me, and uh, every day I, I find out something new.
1: Well, thank you for being with us uh, today. We're also joined by journalist Nicole Carr, who is a reporter for ProPublica, but former but is a fellow alum of uh, WSBTV <laughs> News. Nicole, although you were there much more recently than I was, but I'm glad to have you on the show today.
3: Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
1: A lot of your focus, you've written a lot about schools and COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to ask you some questions about that today, so thanks for being here. And we're joy, and I'm very happy to say, by Dr. Jody Guest, who is the vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Um, Dr. Guest, we're so glad to have you back. One of the things I thought about with you is I wondered if, say, two years ago or so, when you were at a party and people said, what do you do, Jody?" You said, oh, I'm an epidemiologist, and people sort of shrugged, wondering what the heck that was. I suspect most people now know what an epidemiologist is.
4: I think that's true. You don't find me at any parties these days, but they would know yeah. what I was doing if I was that one. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> um, all right, let's, let's talk about where we stand uh, today, and, and I'm going to read briefly from uh, the New York Times reporting this week. Um, What is the Omicron variant is a question they ask. First identified in Botswana and South Africa, this new iteration of the coronavirus has prompted concern among scientists and public health officials because of an unusually high number of mutations that have the potential to make the virus more transmissible and less susceptible to existing vaccines. The World Health Organization has called Omicron a a variant of concern, and at the beginning of this week, warned that the global risks posed by it were very high. So, Dr. Guest, again, we go into this realizing there's still so many unknowns here. But if you wouldn't mind, start us off by talking a little bit about what it means that this mutation seems to have caused so much more of a flurry of attention than um, even Delta or B before it?
4: Well, I think that that's because this mutation does have, this variant does have so many mutations, and that makes us very concerned about what they could mean. There are about 30 mutations that are just specifically on the spike protein, which is the key to getting into the cells in our body. And so we want to make sure we understand how they work. The really important thing to know with this number of mutations is how they work in combination with each other, and it's not any one particular one of those mutations. So it's possible they could all cancel each other out. We have signals that that's probably not the case because we are seeing cases rise so quickly in in South Africa where we have some of our best data. And I want to point out that that is a huge thanks to South Africa and Botswana for raising the alarm so very quickly. And we should probably talk about what that means when we've got parts of the world that are giving us that information real time and how the rest of us benefit from that. But that is one of the reasons why we're most concerned. Do the number of mutations that it have change the way we can transmit it? who's most going to be impacted, and then we're also very concerned about how severe disease might be and if our vaccines continue to work. So those are the big questions.
1: Um, Thank you. You know, Patricia, for those of us who are just laymen watching this unfold, uh, I think one of the things that is frightening, to me at least, is this notion that we're we're in battle with a very smart virus, a virus that knows how to perpetuate itself. And this notion that you think about this, what, what Dr. Guest knows much more about than I ever will, this this spike that allows it to enter our bodies, to penetrate our immune systems and the mutations of it. And it just feels like a science, uh, science fiction nightmare to those of us who don't know much about this, doesn't it?
0: Uh Yes. <laughs> That's a and yes, it's a very <laughs> scary thing to think about actually. Um, you know, we always only want to think about ourselves going forward in a crisis and not going backward. Um, and I really do think that's where um, really sound leadership comes in, um, both from the medical community, which I think has been so reliable, um, but then also from our political leaders. And I think that that is the tone that um, President Biden has tried to set this week by saying, this is um, something that we are aware of and concerned about. We're not panicked about it. Um, we're looking for more information about it. It. In the meantime, here are the following steps we're taking to be as vigilant as possible. And so the president laid out a series of steps, including um, a move to have home testing available for people to ask insurance companies to pay for those home tests and a number of other um, a number of other steps. And he said, in the meantime, what can you do today? go get the vaccine, go get boosted, do what you can, be vigilant. And so I think we're going to continue to need political leadership in this um, country and in the state that um, is just that, that is um, assertive uh, and not panicking, but also really keeping a close eye on this and and continuing to keep people's trust, because without people's trust, um, any recommendations are going to fall on deaf ears.
1: Um, Andy, we know that uh, we now have a number of cases reported in the United States, the first in San Francisco. Uh, but since that first case, we now know there have been a number of cases in New York. I think Long Island and, and uh, around Long Island at least, I think, up to half a dozen cases so far. Um, so, Andy, one of the real concerns here, in the same way that we watched the Delta variant suddenly explode, is are we going to see the same thing with uh, Omicron?
2: Well, I think it's, going, it's inevitable that we're going to see it here. I mean, the big, the big issues uh, that Dr. Guest could probably talk about, it, the three big issues are we don't know how transmissible or contagious it is. We don't know basically how severe the disease that it causes uh, as compared to Delta. And we don't know how the vaccines, how well they're going to work. We know that the vaccines will provide at least some immunity, Uh, some protection. And um, there's a lot of talk about getting boosters now. Uh, But I I, I have to say one thing, Bill, is if you look at numbers, the number that concerns me the most is 51 percent. And that's the percentage of Georgians who are fully vaccinated. Mm
1: -hmm. And we could do a lot better on that. I was going to just talk about that. Nicole, um, as Andy points out, uh, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health's figures, Uh, As of today, 58% have one dose of the vaccine, only 51% are fully vaccinated. And although they may have the figure somewhere, I haven't been able to find it on their website. We don't know how many people have received the boosters at this point, Nicole. So this is still a very vulnerable state to a more serious variant.
3: Yeah, it is. And when we talk about, I know we'll get into this conversation about pediatrics and kids and the trickle down, Um, the trends that we see and the adults, right, these are the folks making the decisions for our children. And whether we are taking a look at how severe uh, COVID will affect them in in these new variants or not, we know that uh, regardless if they're If they're catching the virus, then that means um, the home space is compromised and that is our community space. And so there is a lot that we don't know, but there is so much that we do know (laughs) from where we have been. And um, I'm kind of obsessive about uh, what we saw happen uh, during the first pandemic and comparing trends to what we see now. And there are obviously measures we know work. There are things that we can do. What we're working within right now, as Patricia is pointing out, um, we're working with something that's not just a health concern, but a political debate. And so that seeps into our schools as well, and I don't want to get ahead of the conversation, but we have got to get on the same page about the way we care about one another, Um, before we can tackle anything new that will inevitably come our way.
1: Yeah, I do want to talk about uh, President Biden and and the speech that he gave yesterday uh, about what he sees the country needing to do to deal with the new variant, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But before we do, and, uh, Dr. Guest, and I'm going to ask, I have a couple questions, and then certainly we have a great panel of journalists, and any of you, please weigh in if you also would like to ask Dr. Guest about what's happening here. So, Dr. Guest, um, what do we 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 don't know? We, we're getting some. Uh, preliminary data that suggests that, vaccine, that this particular variant can get around uh, f- fully vaccinated people. A- am I right about that?
4: You are right that we have some signals for that, but I want to caution that we don't have any tests. This is all pretty anecdotal data that we have from some of the cases that we've seen in South Africa, particularly, Again, because thank you, they give us data in very real time. Um, And in Hong Kong as well, what we're seeing is that some of the first cases were in vaccinated people. They were not in boosted people, and so we do know that, and we don't even have some of the vaccine data on some of the newer cases, including some of the U.S. cases. There is some suspicion that this can get around our vaccines from our first and second doses, and that is why a bunch of people who – scientists who may have been more cautious about the need for boosters for everyone 18 and older and were more interested in boosters for those who are immunocompromised or are in our older populations, we're now on board to say let's go ahead and get boosted because we, we've we not seen a case in a person who's had a boosted dose of the vaccine. and um, And anytime you can – upgrade your antibody response, we should be willing to do that. But I also want to point out the other reason for that is, in the United States, Delta is where our conversation still needs to be. That is hmm. still what is controlling this pandemic in the United States.
0: Um Doctor, I guess, can you tell us a little bit if you have any visibility into our hospitals right now? Um, I think there's been a little bit less real-time reporting in terms of um, what the caseloads are, what the burdens are on healthcare providers. I'd love to know more about that if you have um, some insight on
4: that. I know that here in the southeast right now we're in a much better spot than we've been in for months. Um, but we still have cases in the hospital. I, the majority of the hospital shortages in beds is currently in the northeast. So Michigan is very, very tight on hospital beds. But you're right; we're not talking about that quite as much. And hospitalizations have come down, but we still we had 1,500 deaths yesterday in the United States from COVID-19, and those are going to be Delta-oriented deaths. And I, I've been saying this for a while, and a bunch of other. Um, Public health people as well. We cannot get to a place where we're willing to accept a thousand deaths a day in the United States from a vaccine-preventable virus. And you know, so I just urge everyone to not be willing to accept this, as this is how we're going to live with this virus the rest of our lives. It does not have to be this way.
1: So, uh, uh, Andy, just to uh, give a couple more figures from Georgia DPH. Um, as of yesterday, or on yesterday, uh, the Department of Public Health reported uh, 1,175 new cases of COVID-19. I assume, as Dr. Guest points out, many of those are going to be Delta uh, variants. And there were 22 people who died yesterday, uh, according to the Department of Public Health records. They have a low figure, as Dr. Guest points out. We, they show only 150 hospitalizations right now from COVID, which is a dramatic, obviously drop from what we've seen uh, in the past, Andy.
2: Well, healthcare <clears throat> workers really uh, were slammed. I mean, think about how many months that they've had to work extra shifts, extra hours in very dangerous conditions. So so our hats are off to them. Uh, Dr. Guest, I did have a question and that is um, uh, the possibility that, that I'm a boosted double vaccine, all the vaccine shots I've had. Will we Is there a possibility that we will have, I will have to, and others will have to get a separate booster, another booster for this variant?
4: I think that that's a possibility. What I will um, uh, say is that that was a consideration for the beta variant that we've all mostly forgotten about. That was also something that we considered for the Delta variant, which we're still living in the United States and many parts of the world. And so we, that has been a conversation for a lot of these variants. I think we're hearing about it more publicly with the Omicron variant, um, but I want to caution everyone to wait and see. We're still a couple of weeks away from knowing how well our vaccines work. What we have seen so far is that the cases of Omicron um, that we know about have been seemingly pretty mild, although I will, again, caution us, I want to see how many times I can say that word today, um, that <laughs> a lot of the cases have been in younger people, and they and we typically see that those cases are more mild. It does not mean that we haven't had some deaths in younger people. But, but a lot of our South African cases are in university-age um, people, and so they are more likely to have mild disease to start with. And if you have any level of vaccine-oriented protection, that tends to make your case more mild as well, and so a combination of those things. But back to your original question, the, the work is in the process to come up with a, an Omicron-specific vaccine, but we don't know that we need it yet. So scientists will, will be doing that in parallel with us figuring out if that's necessary so that it's ready to go if the decision is that this particular variant will escape our immunizations at a level that means it we'll need a booster that's specific to protect us from it.
1: Nicole, um, of course, one of the big questions now is, we, we know, I don't have the data in front of me, and maybe you do. Uh, we know that that five to 11-year-olds are now eligible to be vaccinated. And I think I'm correct that the percentage of, of a Children in those ages, it's fairly low here in Georgia at this point. And school, I mean, I know Christmas break's coming up, but school will be back in session when this thing is still raging.
3: Yeah, and I know, you know, obviously we were going through this with Delta entering the school year. I don't have the figures in front of me now. I looked at them late last week in some areas that I saw of, of concern as far as the low youth vaccination rates. <laughs> were Clayton County. Gwinnett County kind of surprised me. Um, Cobb was doing okay. Just kind of monitoring what that looks like county by county. And uh, for my reporting purposes, kind of comparing that to the issues that um, the schools have had in the first semester, which we haven't really talked about. Um, You have to really be inside to understand how much of a toll Uh, keeping track of this thing in the schools is taking on um, our teachers, our paraprofessionals who are reporting data and trying to keep seating charts and trying to keep track of things that the schools can then uh, move on and report to the state. Had a very interesting conversation this week with APS's new epidemiologist, and I was asking, like, what is the best way to measure spread in schools and what we're really seeing. We know we look at per capita rates all the time, right? Um, in, In the community and in the schools, but how is it spreading in the schools? The best way to look at that is to look at clusters. How do you figure out clusters That's in the classroom? Who figures that out? Mrs. Smith, who teaches math, who keeps attendance, who's keeping you apart, who's making sure you get to the bus, like, Resources are so important, and APS has just uh, formed this new almost task force around figuring these things out in the classroom. But how many districts do we have in Georgia? Over 170? Mm -hmm. Who has these resources to keep track of this stuff so that we get a true picture of what's happening inside the schools? And um, just a semester into the Delta variant, which affected uh, the youth much more than the, the original, we don't have that in place yet. So there are a lot of unknowns when it comes to what's happening in the classroom. Um, it, as far as the booster, I did want to ask Dr. Guest, like at what point, and maybe it's too early for this, do we talk about the definition of fully vaccinated? Mm. Um, <laughs> and does that change? Cause I'm, I'm very much just personally a person. I need direction. I need to know exactly what this means. And we're boosted, <laughs> but you know, and my husband came a week after me. He was like, "I don't know that I'm in the category. I don't need this." I'm like, "Well, by your job, you do. You're around a ton of people all the time. Let's go get boosted." But he needed someone to like tell him, besides me. You know. So when we talk about <laughs> messaging, <laughs> you know, that's another step in combating this. Like, what does how does our messaging change uh, um, while we're working through all of this and all the unknowns? Yeah.
1: Dr. Guest?
4: Yeah, so that's such an interesting question about whether or not we'll change fully vaccinated to mean boosted. And, you know, if someone started with Johnson & Johnson and then they need a booster, you know, does their definition now become a two-dose vaccine, but it's not the same uh, between the two? You know, there are so many different um, permutations of what you can do with this. I think because I I think about this about 20-plus hours a day, you know, it's always, I always need to remind myself that, that everyone else doesn't. And um, and so when I'm out in the community talking, I was at a, a, a about a nine-hour vaccine event yesterday and talking to folks, you know, who said, you know, I don't know how many I was supposed to get. Um, is this a one-dose or a two-dose? We still don't have that messaging to everyone, and that's before we even had boosters. And so, you know, we need to remember that consistent, messaging and when we change it explain why we're changing the messaging is such an important part of our science communication on this you know science is meant to be iterative it's meant to learn and to change things as we learn it but we need to talk about why we're changing things so I don't have an answer for you if boost is going to become our new fully vaccinated but it's a great question
1: Um, Dr. Guest, just to follow up on that, I do think it's uh, worth pointing out, important to point out, that apparently the latest guidance, um, I hope it's from CDC if I'm correct, I know it's becoming from the public health uh, community, uh, suggests that if you've had, say, a Moderna shot and and boosters, I have, but if you've had just the Moderna one and two Um, it it now appears that you can go ahead and get Pfizer for your booster and it will have the same impact. So mixing and matching is acceptable. And in fact, that may help people uh, get boosters uh, because they have more availability, right?
4: Yeah, so at this point in time, we would say if you've had Moderna or Pfizer as your first series, you should get Moderna or Pfizer for your booster. It doesn't matter which of those two, just stick with an mRNA. If you had Johnson & Johnson, The best data comes from getting an mRNA booster. It is fine if you get a Johnson & Johnson, but your mRNA booster will be a better response in antibodies.
1: Patricia.
0: Uh, Dr. Guest, um, because uh, Nicole was talking about schools, um, I believe a number of the schools in the metro area are considering relaxing some of their um, protocols, including masks, um, because there is a new variant on the horizon and it seems like new variants are sort of the new normal of this COVID, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, should they be considering tapping the brakes on relaxing those protocols, or what do you think is appropriate right now in terms of um, planning in uh, in spaces?
4: So I am not a fan of relaxing the protocols to then have to put them back into place. Um, I think that that's really hard, especially when we already see on the horizon that we have something coming. And so I think it is easier to stay the course and keep those masks on for now. Um, you know, we just find it very difficult to go back to them once we've taken them off. So I'm lucky to teach in a place where we still have our masks on, and that is our, our plan is to keep them on um, for at least the foreseeable future with a new variant coming that we think might be more transmissible. And I think that's just a really safe way to stay in classes together and if our end goal is to keep kids in school we should be doing everything we can to make that happen and masks are a very good way to keep the, our children in school safely
1: um, Patricia because you have two uh, young boys uh, you'll be interested uh, in, in what uh, Natalie Mendenhall just said uh, sent me I, I said that uh, uh, both Nicole and I were not sure what the current data was on the percentage of people 5 to 11 or 5 to 9, whatever, have been vaccinated. She sent me data that shows that from 5 to 9, only 8.4% have had one dose. And from ages 10 to 14, it's basically 32%. Um, So, Patricia, you know, for a a mom with young kids, uh, that's got to be uh, something that really uh, keeps you awake a little bit at night.
0: Well, um, you know, ours have had their first dose, um, and we're waiting to get them their second. Um, and I really uh, thought about um, a part of the reality is that schools are relaxing their protocols. And so um, you're looking at a world, um, possibly, where children who have no, um, no protection from a vaccine also have no protection from masks, and they have been so safe. Um, in the past, that um, to me that was a really big piece of it. Uh, I understand, I fully understand parents' um, concerns. Um, you don't want to do anything to your children that would have long-term effects. But um, in in our judgment, uh, the long-term effects of COVID are really scary and are all of the other vaccines that we've had for ourselves in terms of COVID and for um, our children of all the other vaccines that they've had. I, I feel it's a great, to us, us personally, it's been a great privilege, but I did certainly talk to our pediatrician's office before we did it.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and that, f- Thank you for oh, that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, Nicole.
3: No, I just, you know, weighing in on that as a mom as well, um, Our concern here with our three, so we have ten, eight, in our pandemic baby who just turned two, um, was this protection around him. And, you know, I'm already looking for the under five vaccine. We're talking about boosters and variants. And I'm like, when are the babies going to get this? Because he's not an antibody baby gave birth to him right before the lockdown. But I know, Patricia, you, you're talking about um, consulting with the pediatrician's office. We were certainly doing that and actually wanted the vaccine administered with our pediatrician rather to feel more comfortable. And this goes back to healthcare messaging, right? Um, to feel more comfortable with what we were doing, um, but it wasn't available in her office. Right away. And I think that takes us back to some some trust issues that we saw in the beginning. And as vaccines rolled out, you saw a lot of physicians saying, hey, if I can get this in the family medicine practice versus them booking through public health or going to the pharmacy or I can get a message through to them and I can answer some important questions. And so I think you've got to think about that, too. when We're talking about Nicole. Families, Car- who do you trust?
1: Mm-hmm. Nicole Cargit, you get the last word on the first segment of the show. We got to get to a break, but we'll have a lot more to talk about in just a moment on Political Rewind. I'm joined today by Dr. Jody Guest, an epidemiologist and the vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, Uh, journalist Andy Miller of Georgia Health News, Nicole Carr of ProPublica, and my Friday partner Patricia Murphy, uh, reporter and political columnist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Let's listen to uh, just a little bit an edited version of some of the remarks that President Biden made yesterday about the Omicron variant and how he would like to
5: see the country address
1: it, and then we'll
5: talk about it. Today, I'm back to announce our action plan to battle COVID-19 this winter. And it doesn't include shutdowns or lockdowns, but widespread vaccinations and boosters and testing and a lot more. First is expanding the nationwide booster campaign with more outreach. More appointments, more hours, more times and sites to walk in, providing boosters, shots for up to 110 million Americans who are eligible for boosters. Launching new family vaccination clinics to make it easier for children, parents and whole families to get vaccinated in one place. And new policies to keep our children in school instead of quarantining them at home. The third piece of this is making free at-home tests more available than ever before and having them covered by your private insurance plans, available in thousands of locations and available at community health centers and other sites for the uninsured who don't have insurance. We're going to accelerate efforts to vaccinate the rest of the world and strengthen the, uh, strengthen the international travel rules for people coming to the United States. My plan I'm announcing today pulls no punches in the fight against COVID-19, and it's a plan that I think should unite us. We're going to fight this variance with science and speed, not chaos and confusion. You know, Patricia, I, I think you can sort of
1: hear between the lines the careful political calculus in the way that the president addressed this. He wants the country to take it seriously. He'd suggested any number of uh, mitigation efforts that he wants to uh, uh, go th- get, get into place. But he's also suggesting people, I'm not going to lock it down, and essentially saying I'm not going to give Republicans and my opponents an opportunity to start bashing me over my restrictive measures.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you're uh, listening, uh, you're hearing him right there, trying to prevent Republicans from saying, "Oh, here we go again. Here we go with the lockdowns. Here we go with the force. This and that." Um, I think that uh, it's just a really careful. Um, walk that he and every leader has to walk because um, the measures and the recommendations must be accompanied by trust in that leader. And so um, to say we are doing this uh, carefully and avoiding confusion, um, it's measured, but it's assertive, Um, you can just feel that balance that he's trying to strike.
1: Dr. Guest, um, should the measures that you just uh, heard him describe or or read about uh, today, earlier, Uh, Do they seem to you to be the correct mitigation efforts right now? Do you worry that we ought to be going further?
4: I think that they're very good measures to put into place, and I'm particularly thrilled to hear the conversation now go to at-home testing. It becomes a problem to try to track all of those at-home tests, and that's another issue. But what we know is that testing is a form of prevention, and we need to use it. As a country, we have not been invested enough in access to testing, and bringing those tests at home are incredibly important and making sure that it's not about who can afford them, but everyone should have access to them.
1: Andy?
2: Well, I, I, I think that they are good measures. I, I think that uh, one thing that might cause uh, some strain on people is uh, requiring a, uh, a negative test a day before someone gets on a plane heading back to the U.S., that might be some because you're dealing with a foreign country there. It might be difficult to kind of time all that. But I, I'm I'm still struck by the political divide over the pandemic. We we know that many more Republicans have not gotten vaccinated and refused to. We've got still hear this misinformation and disinformation where. You know, with a pandemic, with a public health emergency, we would hope that both parties, political parties, would be working together to get people vaccinated and keep people
1: safe. Nicole? Nicole, I'm not hearing you right now.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Here we go. Here we go. Um, To Andy's point about the politics of this, you know, our our reporting as it related to schools uh, delved into this because we have school board involvement in the discussion around how we're going to handle this. And here in Cobb, at least, where our reporting was concentrated, we saw not only a political divide, a, a racial divide. And we can't have that seeping into the conversation about these health measures um, because we deepen the risk of inequities. And so going back to home testing, uh, we visited the family and got together indoors for the first time in mass for Thanksgiving this year. And, Got to the window. I asked everyone to test before we got in there. We have the babies. Not everyone is eligible for the vaccine. I had that hard conversation with family members about please confirm in the group chat that you are fully vaccinated. You know, these are questions we have to ask one another, and they're often uncomfortable in our own families, right? Because you say, oh, are you judging me if I'm not? Are you not going to let me see my? My niece or nephew or grandbaby, if I'm not, what does this mean? And so we're already getting into that before we get around the table, right? But you get to the window and the pharmacy is telling you we're not, we can't get these test results back in one to two days. And I'm like, oh, my plan just blew up in front of me. So you go <laughs> get the at-home test, 23.95 dollars a box. And we're talking about, and I'm taking them back home, because inevitably, I get to my mom's house. My brother hasn't taken the test like we agreed. I'm like, step back. Let me swab you outside. I'm not playing about this. We spent hundreds in tests to go home. <laughs> who, yeah. who can do that? So we, we can't. And then you have to take it properly. So not only do we have a conversation about reporting results and being honest with each other about what it shows, but
5: do you know how to use it? Yeah.
3: These uh, are things do- that have to come with the plan.
1: Yeah, Dr. Guest, uh, I think Nicole Carr just described very, very well for all of us how complicated it can be to take all the precautions you really want to, right? <laughs>
4: Yes. So I did a similar thing, Nicole, with my family for Thanksgiving. You know, we're all fully vaccinated, except for an eight year old that was one dose in and had just got his second dose on Wednesday. So that's super. But, you know, that's after Thanksgiving and it wouldn't have been 14 days after anyway. And our entire goal was to make sure that all the adults in the room were not a risk for him. And we came, you know, we traveled from out of state. The rest of my family was all in one state. But I said, we all need to be testing before we do this. And, you know, and I had walked everyone through how to do it. And then at one point in time, my mom sent a message. She said, okay, guys, this is an easy test to do. It's like taking a pregnancy test. And I was like, stop. No one pee on the test. Like, this is not the same.
2: So you do have to
4: worry about that. Yeah,
2: the family dynamics. I, I got to say just one thing on this issue: the family dynamics. You know, you get into things like one family member might say, "You can't tell me what to do,"
3: yeah. and
2: you, you hear that a lot in in discussions like this.
1: So, uh, before we have to get to a break, uh, Dr. Guest, it it feels like what we heard from from the president, with the exception of his uh, imposing some new travel. Uh, into the country restrictions is pretty much the same advice around Omicron that we've had all along for this, right? It's wear your mask, get vaccinated, maintain some form of social distancing. The rules aren't suddenly changing for how we can try best to protect ourselves, right? We
4: We know we want people vaccinated. We're adding boosters for everyone 18 and older, so that's a little bit new. There's a little bit of a, a stronger conversation now about testing um, and where that but masking, being outdoors when you can possibly be outdoors, being in ventilated spaces, being separated when you possibly can. These are the things that we know work, and we need to consistently talk about them. They worked for Delta. We have every reason to believe those exact same non pharmaceutical interventions will work for Omicron. There's no reason they should not.
1: If- Uh, Patricia, before we get the break, uh, in terms of the politics of this thing, we know we we know basically no matter what President Biden says, uh, he is going to get pushback from Republicans on the virus. They're going to at the same time hold him responsible for the fact that the virus is not disappearing and and also continue to fight his efforts to make sure people are vaccinated or wearing masks. It's a double bind for the president of the United States.
0: Yeah. And it really feels like there is a large group of people for whom nothing he says or does will convince them that this is serious. Um, I spoke with a voter in North Georgia for a story I was doing on on politics um, and it came up uh, about COVID and uh, the conversation was, well, I'm not vaccinated. Why would I get vaccinated if you have to do it three times and it obviously doesn't work? And I'm like, uh, OK, you know, so, you know, I think it is gonna be super important to figure out how to solve for that. Um, there's a level of preaching to the choir now, I feel like, among friends and family members and members of the media all talking to each other, like, yes, it's serious, we all know this, but there is there are millions of Georgians, hundreds of millions of Americans who don't agree.
1: All right, um, thank you for that. Let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more uh, from this great panel. <laughs> Dr. Guest, um, let's turn to another uh, part of the uh, uh, fight against COVID-19 for a couple of minutes because um, your uh, school has been involved with it. Uh, at Emory, working with, I think Merck, has been developing a pill uh, to fight COVID-19. And I think I'm right to say that one of the reasons that that effort and others who are working develop pills are so significant uh, because this is something you'll be able to take at home uh, it won't require getting a shot in the arm. Can you talk a little bit about what's been going on with what has been developed at with Emory and Merck?
4: Sure. So the pill is called Molnupiravir, which it took me a second to learn how to say that. And um, that particular <laughs> antiviral was being developed for general viral infections and not specific to COVID-19. But when COVID-19 happened, they, of course, tested this as well as, you know, anything else anyone was working on to see if it would be efficient in, in, um, you know, against this particular virus, and it was. And so Emory was the point of discovery for this. It was given to Merck and Ridgeback Pharmaceuticals to do the clinical testing, and it is now um, getting the data ready to submit to, for emergency use authorization to the FDA. The reason this antiviral is really important is that, you, as you said, you can take it at home and it will be easy to transport. And so we'll be able to, you know, anyone across the world would have hopefully have access to this and it would be an easier thing to share. But I want to point out, this is for if you have COVID-19 and so our Mm -hmm. vaccines are to keep you from getting it. So we don't want to conflate this with prevention the other thing to know is you actually have to know you have COVID-19 pretty early to have access and have this work. And so that takes us back to our testing.
1: Yeah. Uh, Andy, you know, one of the things when I, when I read about what's happening there, and as I've followed the news about Georgia institutions dealing with COVID, uh, it, it, it's just worth reminding people, because this is a beat you cover all the time, that Atlanta, Georgia are in so many ways the center of the public health universe um, and not just CDC, Rollins School of Public Health, um, uh, the uh, Task Force for Global Health. It's it's pretty remarkable, uh, and I don't know that people realize uh, uh, as much as they might uh, they should uh, just how important Atlanta is as a public health uh, center. Well,
2: I would I would say that it, if it it's the public health capital of the country and one of the biggest in the world, I would you know I think by any measure and. And uh, the Emory people, the researchers, have done just a great job developing vaccines and, and this pill that we hope will be very effective. But, but think about the CDC and, and how it's been operating and, I, and, and fighting this. And this is what they do. They fight disease. This happens to be a very, very huge challenge for them. And I think, uh, you know, they're all hands on deck with it.
1: Um, Patricia and then Nicole, just to uh, go back to the politics of it for a minute, Um, we know that CDC under Donald Trump lost a lot of its prestige um, and credibility. Do you sense that under uh, uh, Rochelle Walensky, it's recovering and with Joe Biden as president, that CDC is recovering its place in the world or does it still have a ways to go?
0: Uh, no, I think it uh, it certainly is. I think that the CDC's reputation above and beyond um, COVID is uh, is just so long and durable um, that uh, kind of a temporary bump in the road, I don't think has permanently sullied its its image or reputation um, uh, but I do think that uh, public health, this has been a sort of a wake-up call that a big piece of public health, at least for the rest of us to start to understand is that there is the the medicine piece of it and then there's the communications piece of it and so I think we still have a long way to go in, um, in being able to fully deliver on our public health potential um, when we have such a communications problem um, uh, and the the, you know, the the controversies that CDC had in the past. Um, it, recent past,
3: I think, is a part of the communications problem we have right now.
1: Nicole? Yeah,
3: I, have, I have some colleagues who did some great reporting uh, at the beginning of the pandemic about the turmoil inside the CDC um, at the time. So from CoPublica, it was called Inside the Fall of the CDC and not meaning a literal fall, but the the actual turmoil in real time and what was happening. And um, I I think what has been wonderful coming out of this is how we have gotten to know healthcare professionals in the same way as we know a lot of influencers, right? So my, my feeds are, are filled with these the experts, the people I trust, the people I turn to. I think they've become these um uh, influencers in their own right here, whether you're looking for someone who looks like you to, to, for guidance. And I'm talking about healthcare inequity in the Black community. And I'm thinking about Dr. Manning at, at Grady. And I think about Dr. Del Rio. And Dr. Guest, you've always been um, so accessible. Dr. Amber Schmicky on the data front and, and giving us an idea of what the task force looked like with the state when that was happening. So, The messaging is is so important. And unfortunately, seeing is believing. And a lot of people don't wake up until it affects them. And, you know, that's what we don't want to wait for, including when we're talking about our our children and the long-term effects.
1: We are just about out of time. But, Dr. Ghez, just to pick up on on that, um, I've said on this show any number of times, those of you who work in the field of public health, Are doing such extraordinary work and um, I'm so grateful that uh, you do continue the work you're doing and also that you're willing to share it with us on Political Rewind. So first of all, Dr. Guest, thanks for being with us today. We've really enjoyed having you here.
4: Thank you. I really enjoy being on this and I I cannot agree how important appropriate messaging is and the hole that it has gotten us in at times so anything we can do to
1: fix that is, incre- is important. Andy Miller, Georgia Health News. It's been a pleasure to have you back on uh, the show. Nicole, K- Nicole Carr, thank you from ProPublica. And my partner, Patricia Murphy, a pleasure to have you with us as you are on Friday shows. Um, thank you all for today. Um, so we're, that's the end of our conversation today. But as most of you who listen to the show regularly know, um, I've ended every show this week. Uh, paying just a short, small tribute to the great, great artist-composer Stephen Sondheim, who died a week ago today, unexpectedly, at age 91. He was the most influential voice, I think, certainly in Broadway theater, for thousands and thousands of people, my family included in that. And people are still mourning his loss today. So I've closed every show by playing a piece of music from one of Sondheim's shows. And I saved today uh, for one that I think many people consider a masterpiece. In 1984, Sondheim uh, uh, debuted on Broadway, Sunday in the Park with George. It was a show about the um, Impressionist artist Georges Seurat, who, um, among his many paintings, painted a, a picture called Sunday Afternoon on the Isle Grand Leger, which shows people walking through a a beautiful park, very sunny, they have parasols, they are dressed in their Sunday finest. And the whole show was about the process of creating art. And the last number in the first act, we saw the painting literally come together on stage with the actors and sets, and they sang this song, which I share with you to celebrate the life of the great Stephen Sondheim. Sunday in the Park.
5: Lex.